Sea went to the air to ground on one contact. This is a digest of General Seminar Season 4, Episode 4, where we went into possible circular economy futures. So, General Seminar is the Near Future Laboratory platform for workshopping the implications of trends, topics, technologies, and cultural shifts as they evolve into some possible future. It's a way of exploring the symptoms of evolving behaviors, cultural rituals, social norms, behavioral patterns, and we do this not by relying on experts or know-it-alls, but by using our intellect and our ability to sense-make through generative discussion. General Seminar is a bit like a salon and a bit like taking on the role of a forensic archaeologist. We hop into the Near Future Laboratory's janky time machine, yes, we have one, and we step out into a world in which the topics we're engaged in has come into being to the degree that it is normal, ordinary, and everyday as a television remote control or drinking a Coca-Cola. It just is. And then we look for evidence of this shift for clues in the form of material, cultural artifacts, and objects, the things that you might find if you just looked around your own kitchen, your own office, you looked around at the corner convenience store, an advertisement in a newspaper for a service that implies we are in a world where value operates in a circular flow. This is one aspect of what design fiction does. It doesn't seek to predict or prognosticate Rather, it creates artifacts that represent evidence of possible change in the world. The artifact, the thing found in the world, is full of stories that have to be unlocked when presented as evidence. The object suggests things and thus operates differently than a futures report or even a didactic science fiction story. What we do with this object is allow it to evoke a sense of curiosity and wonderment. We unpack it. We read into it. We try to understand what it is and how it came to be. We ask, what is this thing? and from what kind of world has it come. This particular general seminar came about after many conversations with Christian and Hugo, who you'll meet in a minute, who have been immersing themselves into the worlds of circular economics. They're eager to help make the value of a circular economy more tangible to key decision makers and C-level executives and engage Near Future Laboratory into this project with the question, how can design fiction help make circular economy principles and possibilities feel more relatable? We decided to co-host a general seminar and see how an audience of folks might relate to this approach. The result was overwhelming enthusiasm. What now follows is an edited digest of a few highlights from two general seminar sessions, three hours in total, distilled down to about 30 minutes. We start with an introduction from Christian and then clarification as to what we mean in this context by circular economy. Thanks so much, Julian. It's great to be with you again and, and with the audience here. Um, so Hugo and I have been working together for several years now, ever since we met at the uh, Circular Economy Masterclass. We're both um, at the University of Exeter in England. Um, we are both recovering strategy consultants, and we care a lot about helping brands make the transition, the full transformation from linear economy to a circular economy future that's, as we say, aspirational and delightful, because we think that without an engaged public and establishing that demand, um, companies are going to have a really hard time making the switch. Um, our backgrounds, like I said, you know, we're we're strategists by trade, but you know, we've held leadership positions in um, operations and finance and uh, marketing, and uh, and what we have noticed is is that 
and I think this this is the key off of something that Julian just said that I hadn't thought about before, which is when you get those, you know, when you when you do the the analysis and you get those communiques from Davos that Julian mentioned, you know, you get up, just up to the precipice of making the switch, but um, but you, but they never can quite go all the way, and so the question that uh, Hugo and I asked ourselves back when we we first met and we were steeped in the theory of circular economy is. What's keeping people from going all the way and how can we help them? Um, and, you know, ultimately where we netted out on that is the, the, all the reasons for not taking the final step today had a certain level of tangibility and the vision of where they were heading had a, had a much smaller level of tangibility. So naturally the more tangible, you know, side of the decision equation would always win out. So, so the question was, how can we help create this vision? How can we help share the vision? And how can we help develop a community around the shared vision that uh, that can, you know, establish that, that foothold, and that, that sense of tangibility for the circular future that we really ought to want to live in. And so that naturally brought us into contact with Julian, you know, and his you know, de design fiction approach and, and the artifact in the future idea. And it just was just a perfect fit. So um, uh, I think, uh, you know, what I'd just like to say is um, we're, we're learning, like nobody is really a circular economy expert, I don't think, you know, despite what the circular economy experts will say. Um, and so, uh, you know, we're just really excited to see what comes up here and to learn from um, the imaginative process that's about to unfold. I'm curious if we'll define the circular economy more before getting in the time machine. So we, we can definitely do that. And uh, I'm going to turn to Christian or Hugo. <laughs> they're as close to an expert as we're going to get. So I'll do it. The circular economy is a response to the observation that at the heart of so many of our problems is a simple uh, dynamic that's unique to human beings on this planet. And that is we produce and consume without a sense of intention. Um, in other words, we waste things. You know, in nature, you've probably seen the David Attenborough uh, 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 documentary that starts off with the dung beetle, which is basically talking about how this dung beetle and the, and the entire species just lives off of you know what what elephants leave behind, right? And this is this is you know this is throughout nature, somebody's trash is somebody else's treasure. Only human beings make stuff and, and use it and then bury it in the ground when they're done with it. And that was okay when we were sort of pre-scale um, in terms of our output and um, and only so so big as a species, you know, compared to all the others. But now that's no longer the case. Now we're at scale and we're having a big time impact on the, on the environment and people obviously care a lot about climate change and, and that's a factor, but the circular economy is not so much a sustainability play per se, but it's a way of organizing our commercial activities such that we can have a beneficial impact on all sorts of results. So less plastic pollution, less, less soil erosion and, and everything else that's troubling our, that, that we're doing to our environment. Within that framework, there are three pillars. And the first one is you design out waste and pollution. The second one is you keep objects in circulation 
as long as you can at their highest level of value. And the third is supporting the Earth's regenerative systems. At cocktail parties, people don't want to hear about pillars. And so I've learned to say, if you know what planned obsolescence is, this is the opposite of that. It's worth mentioning at the outset that even though it's a relatively new idea, it's really an amalgam of lots of ideas that have been out there for a while. So one is biomimicry, you've probably heard of, where we can learn from nature about how to make things and how to use things the way creatures in nature do. Another one is the performance economy, which is an idea from the 70s. And that is instead of paying for ownership of an asset, you pay for the use of an asset. And you can imagine how that's a big part of our lives today in sharing economy type stuff. And there's one other, Hugo, help me out. What's the third one that I'm missing? Um, there's a, a series, the blue economy and so forth. But I, I, I think I think you've, you've, you've illustrated it beautifully and more eloquently th- than I could. Um, if you say so. Get... So I'll, I'll quit while I'm ahead. That, Grace, does that answer your question? Yeah, I was, yeah, I was curious, like, um, what the kind of baseline definition was, because I've heard a lot of different things. So I was curious how we were defining it today. But that was great. That's Thank the, you. That's the sort of like dry academic definition. Um, and there's lots of different incarnations of it. Should we assume that post-growth economics is implicit in that? or em- Emphatically, no, according to Hugo and no. me. It, no, okay. it's another definition that has been put forward is it is the decoupling of resource extraction from um, uh, from value creation. So um, you can look at, for example, um, the CEO of Chanel recently gave an interview to the Financial Times where she said that in the future, Chanel will be getting as much from events and memberships and, you know, sort of like, you know, just sort of like, you know, these tribal benefits of being in the Chanel family um, as a Chanel customer, as you will, as they will from, you know, making other handbags and things like that. Um, they're, they're definitely going through the decoupling. And there's other examples of that. I mean, I think a more tangible example and one that's over 50 years old now is, is the Rolls-Royce power by the hour idea. So Rolls-Royce, maker of um, jet engines, falling into third place. And just very, uh, this is a very in-depth and, and, and seminal example, but I'll, I'll cover it in about 20 seconds. The economics of, of jet engine manufacture, at least in the 70s, were you sold a, an engine for at cost or slightly below cost, or maybe if you're lucky, a little above cost, but then you'd recoup um, but the real fat of the of the model was in sale of um, of spare parts and in, and in maintenance services. And what they decided was they could get they could leapfrog out of their third place position by offering essentially an hourly rate. You wouldn't have to bu- basically operationalizing the capital costs. And so it would be an all in like you know instead of charging a million dollars and then you know six million dollars down the line, it would be like a hundred dollars an hour. And you can imagine how that would benefit airlines with high cost of capital and low margins, right? So that was a win-win scenario. And it wound up 
And it wound up aligning incentives because then Rolls-Royce had the incentive to make much more long-lasting, much more robust, much more efficient and, and, um, and inexpensive to run jet engines. Okay. So now what follows is the reporting back after folks have gone into their circular economy futures, having had discussions amongst themselves in breakout rooms, attempting to find artifacts from this future to bring back for us to consider, discuss, and puzzle over. This is the part where we're discussing what folks have found and what the artifacts are. So basically, this is the part where we, we engage in a discussion. What we do is basically go uh, group by group, empty your bag, the stuff that you found or thing that you found or context or experience that you had, and just begin to discuss it. And again, it's like it's kind of going back to that what for us maybe at this point feels slightly embarrassing because it feels so childish. <laughs> Gustavo uh, or, or Jonathan, so like, okay, I'll go. Um, so we, I think we took as the the starting point that that question, which I'm not sure if we, we announced the group, but okay, that that uh, that idea of what's for breakfast. Um, uh, and there were two two things I think that surfaced from that. One is we were talking about okay, what? Um, so Gustavo's example was very. Actually, I'll, I'll start with the other one. So basically talking about breakfast cereal um, and putting to one side this idea of actually whether people should be eating breakfast cereal, whether it's the kind of thing that's that's really good for you. We're talking about a little bit about, okay, well, actually, what's going to be the source? Um, what's going to be the source of everything that it is in your breakfast cereal? Could this be something that you kind of metabolize at home, like I do in like a Bokashi composting? Could this be in the form of spent grain from from breweries? Um and we talked about okay, so this idea of that the the, the packaging of the cereal um, talked about like the the when when typically one thinks of 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 cereal packaging, it's like this incompatibility between the materials, between the valuable stuff that's inside and everything that you get saddled with afterwards, and where that that goes. Um, uh, and we we're talking about okay, so how could you um, what could what could the, the the delivery mechanism look like? It is that you actually have your cereal bowl delivered, for example. Um, and then what you do with those those byproducts and this idea that okay, well actually the, the packaging is somehow calibrated so as to not outlive the the lifespan uh, of its contents. Um, that was one of the things. And then we're talking about okay, well how could those byproducts then be used in almost like a like a terraforming um, approach? Um, speaking about uh, urban context, okay, so how could that be used to to kind of regenerate? Uh, part uh, urban areas which are kind of in in decay and need for that re regeneration. Um, the second thing that we were talking about were were eggs. So Gustavo has has the the luxury of of, of eating eggs from his own chickens, um, and we were thinking, okay, well, how could you uh, how could you replicate that in say an urban context where okay that that setup doesn't necessarily exist or where it's or it's challenging to do. Um, and then we gravitated fairly rapidly. Don't ask me why towards the the the, the idea of pigeons' eggs, um, so that actually you might start to cultivate eggs from urban pigeons, um, and that somehow you would be tapping into uh, tapping into an existing ecosystem, and you'd be using like um, predators that are already existing, like peregrine falcons, for example. Um, Gustavo was talking about the example from Japanese sushi ships. Um, of how you're kind of stimulating that 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 natural ecosystem and that that production, uh, and then we got on talking about okay, well, behind that model of eating uh, pigeons' eggs, there's that there's a kind of an underlying franchise um, where local children are uh, they're the ones both collecting scraps to feed the chickens, 
uh, the pigeons rather, uh, uh, and also uh, collecting collecting the eggs, uh, and that somehow there's some kind of a collective arrangement, which um, which is then responsible for okay, so monitoring pigeon health and uh, and and so on. Um, there are lots more subtle things that that both Jonathan and, and Gustavo came came out with, which I'm probably not doing justice for, but I'll I'll leave it there in order to give more time to to to, to other folk. Yeah, I, I like that the, we also got the um, the young, the kids running up and down the block, like dispensing eggs and collecting rubbish, being an opportunity for like intergenerational exchanges to happen. Uh, you know, so the, the older people in the building benefiting from having, you know, a nine to 10 year old knocking every day and saying, hello, good morning, you all right? Yeah, cool. And yeah. And then we, we thought a little bit about the design of the, you know, the Hugo's question about who makes money off of it. The, uh, the, this sexy pigeon coops on your roof uh, can be part of a franchise offer to each uh, building. So we're like, what? how does it exist today in our communities? And a lot of the work Daniela is doing is on social enterprises. And um, and we're saying, you know, the shoe repairs, the seamstress, those are examples of the circular economy today. And so we're like, what would... what would the shoe repair look like in the future? What would the, the dry cleaning or the the seamstress a shop be like and would it even be different maybe they're such a good example of the future that they would be the same and then we try to expand a bit and we say could could they become a bit of a hub where you know there's something beautiful about repair where it just gives it empowers people from consumers to more than consumers um so like can, could they be that you know you, you still want to be a bit of a consumer of the circular economy you can just go and have them um uh, repair things for you but you could also they could also have like the little, a little sign next to the till where you can you see like workshops on darning uh you know, tomorrow night and then for the people that want to be more than consumers or can't afford to uh, have a seamstress go and learn how to take take power over your things again um so we were dreaming in that world a bit at this point there was a really interesting uh discussion about nostalgia and as it relates to behavior change and the kinds of things that we once desired or the things that we look back on with a sense of uh desire and uh, the value of nostalgia in these contexts on the vibe of things that we've lost like thinking about the, what the artifact could be it could be like in the packaging comes a full schematic of the thing so that anyone can then fix it. Like at the moment, that's obscured to us. Or like a or a dressmaking pattern. Your dress comes with like the pattern that was used to cut it, and then it's got like suggestions for like for next season. You can stitch it here and here and here, and what was a mini dress becomes a maxi dress with a over the sleeve ruffle. Or like you actually get the plans on how to do it. So you could either do it yourself. You could take it to the neighbor three doors down. It was pretty handy. In your town, you had the shoe repairer and the key cutter and all these different people, but maybe there's just that one person now with a 3D printer you can take all of these things to. And we've just made it the same thing that we were looking towards the past in and enjoying, but made it digital and modern and a place for that to actually happen in a new way. Yeah, the, the, and the person, not only do they have the printer that can print in different useful materials, but you have to bring something to supply the printer. So you have some starter material and the 3D knitting machine. You have to, if you want a new pair of trousers, you got to bring your old one in that is then soaked in a bath of some wonderful material, maybe with a slightly organic odor to it. Isn't part of a 
so just checking you can hear me because I'm in a in the top of the mountains in Bavaria. But isn't part of it also the some of the, the underlying some of the things that we're talking about, the kind of basic element of the craft as well. Mm. So like if I think about my grandma or she could look at a dress and pretty much figure out how she could just build it and replicate it. And because she was so used to modifying things and being able to, and the same as if I think about going back to school, like in the 80s, you get put woodwork, you get put a bit of like engineering, a bit of like how to cook, how to sew things. So I think there's like, yeah, as well as several of the patterns, there's all this kind of underlying kind of knowledge about craftsmanship. Ben, as you were speaking, I was thinking about, in my group, we talked about the paradox of choice. It seems like what modern industry, late stage capitalism has, the deal that they've given us is we're going to take away craft, but but we're going to give you more variety, right? We often hear in conversations we've had with people talking about the so-called say do that the people often bring up the example of Shein, right? So you, you look at the demographic Generation Z that has a, a high preference for sustainable goods, but they are the ones who are also buying tons and tons of fast fashion products from Shein and places like it. How do you explain that that difference between expressed and revealed preference? And part of it is, look, like you're only capable of consuming what you have the ability to consume and people are making the judgment. If I can't have something sustainable and high craft, to your point, Ben, then at least I'll have a rainbow uh, a collection of $10 t-shirts from Shein. Johnny or Marco, would you like to pick up and talk about our group? So first of all, I feel extremely privileged to have to be part of this group because I, I think we are kind of like uh, Marty McFly or Emmett Brown or Back to the Future. And, and, and so it's, it's extremely visionary. And so um, um, and I was privileged to have Johnny with in the team because he's coming from a totally different background. I'm more in the industrial packaging, while Johnny is more in the social studies and social economics. And, and so we have a very good exchange. We put the cornerstone, the framework of what we could, how it could be a future where packaging for consumer goods are actually truly circular. Um, and being in the future, we thought we need to be archaeologists in the future for what we have done well in the past, because today paper, plastic and aluminum is, is mostly circular. But plastic, which is the most cons consumed packaging form for everything we used to consume for our existence when we go into grocery stores, is still a big question mark. And so I like that, that we were talking about nostalgia or the curiosity as a signal to look back in, in, in what we have done right to create a, a new form of a circular model that is actually repairing or reusing. And Chris, who was also part in the discussion, say, what will be different if we think about what when you live in a space shuttle that has to be circled by design? So, and in, in, in that sense, packaging is just a medium. It's not actually any more a, a, a marketing product that is designed to make sure that 10 billion people, because we are in the future, okay, have their own chocolate bar the way they want it. Um, and so to bring the people to love the product more than the packaging itself. Um, because, uh, so when the packaging is not anymore a marketing material, is basically a, a, a material that needs to have information 
So I have data in order to create transparency. And so the, the idea that everything we use, we live in a world of data, so make the data available for consumer, okay? To say, okay, what is about this product, this packaging product? Uh, what is gonna happen after that? So here's another group that uh, was focused on life cycle and changing the nature of the life cycle of a product. And uh, I also refer to them as the, uh, the octopus jacket group. You'll see why in a moment. We started thinking about things that already exist, not widespread, but for example, I was giving this example of this um, Brazilian company that they extract the, the rubber from the Amazon uh, using the local population who profit from making the product. So they extract it in an environmentally sustainable way, but also in a socially sustainable way. But then we started thinking about, you know, what happens after at the end of the life cycle of the product. And we started thinking about, you know, the idea of luxury and fashion. And so, for example, um, we came up with this idea of, let's say we're, we're thinking about a winter jacket, right? Which is an item that usually people have less winter jackets than they have t-shirts, for example. But we, we think that like, uh, fashion as a way to express uh, themselves is always going to exist. So what if we had a technology, for example, two things, one, either like, you know, at the end of the life cycle, everything was like very compostable that you could literally go to your backyard and, and compose the t-shirt that you're not wearing anymore. Or in the case of the winter jacket, um, could you have like a thousand jackets in one with a device like so we we're thinking of the dishwasher right you put your dishes you press a button it comes out clean can i put my jacket into a dishwasher kind of machine and you can then um, program which pattern you want a different color maybe a different texture and that jacket can be worn um, throughout the whole winter and you just have to have one because it's possible that it's going to have different patterns and different colors and then ron uh, came back with the with the example of the octopus which not only changes color but it changes texture so like looking at nature looking to nature um you know um in a way that we can evolve our technology using nature as an example um, and fashion is a big environmental problem so um that's kind of what we came up with this next group took an interesting angle on something that i think we're all by now quite familiar with which is uh, refactoring food waste into some other material like uh, composting. In this case, the group was thinking about how food waste could become uh, sort of raw material for some other kind of uh, product like biodegradable toys, for example. Let's give it a listen. So yeah, we um, sort of play it back within like two what if scenarios. So like what we sort of followed the food and we're in the home and thinking about what that looks like. Um, we started talking about the milk coming in the morning in the UK on the porch and taken away and the bottles being recycled that way. Um, so but our minds went to composting and we naturally went, well, you could reuse the composting in your garden. But I think the watch out for circular economy is always like the local hero. And you can actually forget how much the government and the social um, the scale that can happen. So, so what if composting became smart? Um, and instead of just chucking it in a brown bin that we have in the UK and the council take it away, but <clears throat> what if we could really understand what we were chucking away and imagine that being connected to your shopping basket 
And then you start to really see the patterns and how that data could be on a larger scale used to actually help the logistics of what a populace is eating and what they're chucking away and, and, and somehow feeding into the bigger picture. Um, really to design out the waste. It was that element that we stuck with um, there. Um, but then we sort of moved on and thought, well, that's still still very similar to today. It's not futuristic enough. It's just put some data on it. Um, so what if um, we could make a material out of the waste and actually perhaps with the previous conversation feed into the local 3D printer and actually produce things? So... Um, you know, it's in the, in, don't have it here in the UK, but in the States, you still have this blender by your kitchen, I think, that can process and chop the bits of food. But, but what if you had some system, some technology that compacted all of the food waste into a material and did some wizardry to it and out came some, you know, a little block of raw material to make something with, you know, biodegradable um, non-plastic toys we have here that are made from plant-based material. Um, so that that's quite a quick summary, Shreya. I hope I've haven't missed anything. No, we were like, what kind of food are people eating, and how does food waste translate into uh, the kind? What what kind of food waste are there, and what do we do with the food waste that people are consuming? And we went from like how. Uh, some of the other topics that we were trying to cover was the economy and the ecology and how in the future we will be not judging like the GDP of a country or like how much money that they are making, but based on the ecology uh, that they are growing and uh, how are we recycling more food and uh, all the biodegradable materials that are there. And also we went on to edible packaging if there is something like how can we use the food waste to create packaging which is edible and uh, like I like Tom said we were thinking of a system where uh, you will like that's a little harsh word of penalty but the more food waste you do uh, because we in our head food was happiness like the more food waste you do we were looking uh, the more uh, penalty you would be charged on the material on like each apartment would have a place where you throw your food waste and it gets converted into the raw material for 3d printing or raw material for something like that and um, over your lifetime the more food waste you have the more money you have to pay as tax for doing that and so that that thought came into existence because we thought that just because it's circular economy and you know it's okay and we are trying to uh, have everything in um, circularity are we promoting people to consume more like it's okay to consume so how do we make sure like you know that people are not consuming um like how do we look into cons consumption patterns so mm. The value you have a bit of a dilemma, didn't it? It's like you make it circular, but people are then going to want more because they think it's okay. But we should be not consuming more. No, it's, uh, it's interesting. I call this group's artifact the IKEA refurnishing design fiction. Have a listen. 
Um, so we spoke a couple of topics at the start, and then we went down the route of stuff. We have a lot of stuff, particularly with furniture, particularly with IKEA. And I like how Tyler put it. Um, how might we, as a question, how might we reverse the whole process of IKEA? They pride with they pride themselves with the flat packaging, sending it to the customer. But then once it's once it's um, built up, it kind of stops there. So how might we return that way and pack it back up again when it's done of its life? So we kind of follow down the the route of how someone's thinking or going through when wanting to get real furniture, for example. So you might scan uh, the wardrobe or that lamp that you don't want anymore. And because it's smart, it knows the model, it straight away knows the material breakdown of that, uh, of that, that furniture item. It gives you a list of tools you need to disassemble it. And it automatically sends you um, a packaging set, a kit, a toolkit um, of everything you need to, to disassemble the furniture. And um, yeah, and then you kind of pack it up and sends it off. And I think the assumption is that there is enough furniture in your local community that we don't have to make more things. So if someone needs that wardrobe, um, you know, they can go into the platform and request that wardrobe to be sent to them. So IKEA becomes that middleman of moving furniture around rather than making new furniture. And because of that process of of refurbishing, uh, refurbishing it, they might realize that particle board materials aren't very uh, versatile. So they might start to think about how to make it more higher quality. So it kind of reverses from particle particle board to more solid wood or something like that, so that they minimize the work needed to refurbish uh, the the material. So that was uh, something we talked talked about. Uh, Tyler, do you, do you, did I miss anything there? No, that that was good. I think we we discussed things like. Would it could it link you to like a tool library if you don't have the right tools so that you uh, or or do they just include the tools in the in the flat back box as they do now so that you can sort of package them up and hand them off to whoever gets the the furniture next? I was putting it in the chat on for I've tried to use design fiction for our last food report so that we just don't we don't just have modeling of what the future, what we want the future to be, you know, how much money, how much CO2 emission, but we really like show them. And we could see as soon as we were discussing with all these companies throughout the process of making this report, as soon as we show them the the products, the food products of the future, I've, I've sent the link earlier, um, that we would want to see, the discussion went from where do we go to how do we get there? And we yes. by bypassed yes. to action straight away. Yes. It was amazing to see. And so those were some of the highlights. There were about six more groups that shared back, but I think I'll stop here. There were just some really nice, encouraging, concluding remarks from one of the participants, from Marco. I love this a circular mind that people come together and start brainstorming. Um, you, first of all, you don't feel alone in, in your journey. Second, you, you, you find solutions. I have a thousand of notes for me, taking for my future discussion where I'm I'm speaking in public to, to, to talk about circular-driven solution. So I don't know if it's on Christian, on Hugo, or on anybody else. We should do it again. But what would be my message here? That's so encouraging. That's great. That's beautiful. That's the Digest from General Seminar, Season 4, Episode 4. Thank you for listening.
Androids dream of electric sheep. Yes, they do. And that's also the name of the Underverse's best-selling self-help guide to help you understand, generate service requests, or update your miscalibrated, deregulated Androids, Tri-Droids, home and garden help algorithms, self-connected anticipatory speakers, self-serving service bots, connected appliances, and any self or selfless machine intelligence or artificially intelligent agent, whether mechanical or virtual. That's Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, the self and remote connected on and inline support guidebook that all the celebrity blockchains are raving about. Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, the newest premiere and first edition of the number one autonomously co-authored rereading that is the definitive handbook that reveals the true nature of the Android psyche, including agents with the embedded Honeywell 4710 Waterfowl, Spiri Rand Autonomous 6502, Motorola Trawler 8286, Nexus 6, 7, and 9, as well as Tyrell's latest Nexus 12 Sonoma, also covered as a Zilog Westport Z80, Philips NXP 8080 Entertainment Model, Cuisinart Cortex A54 KitchenMate, Hyundai ShopBot R41, and many, many more that you may find right in your own Conaft, Bunker, or Farm Operating Base. Android Stream of Electric Sheep. Now you'll know. Never question again what your Android is doing when in low power mode. Now understand why your Grumman Garbage Bin drone refuses to take itself out to the curb. Never again will you wantonly antagonize, tease, torment, nor deliver ultimatums to your droids or bots after reading this definitive guide to the Android Psyche. That's Android's Dream of Electric Sheep, available only at shop.nearfuturelaboratory.com. That's Android's Dream of Electric Sheep over at shop.nearfuturelaboratory.com. Android's Dream of Electric Sheep. Android's Dream of Electric Sheep. License restrictions apply. May not be available in all off-world colonies. Android's Dream of Electric Sheep is not necessarily fact-based. Some content may be derivative, augmented, and artificially refactored. Android's Dream of Electric Sheep is not an official service guide to any nor all Android's algorithms, bots, efficiencies, mongers, matrices, and cannot be relied upon in all circumstances to diagnose difficult, troubled, prepubescent, nor hydroxylene-addled Androids. Use extreme caution when antagonizing directly or indirectly bipedal Nexus Series Tyrell Corporation Androids developed prior to, nearly at, nor after 2049 models. Always use extreme caution when interpreting Android's motivations, desires, fears, sense of humor, intentions, and existential quandaries. Warranty restrictions may apply. Check with the reportable service if you for your particular units. Android's Dream of Electric Sheep is available exclusively at shop.newfuturelab.com. Supplies are limited. Act now and save yourself and your family.